Isaiah 49. This evening we're going to only cover the first seven verses of this chapter. And the, the more I wanted to do the whole chapter, we, as we've been doing chapter by chapter lately, uh, the, the more I realized I couldn't move on from many of the verses that we find in this first part of Isaiah 49. And so let's read verses 1 and 2 and then we will pray and get right into our study. Isaiah 49. Listen, O coastlands, to me and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother he has made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has hidden me. And made me a polished shaft. In his quiver he has hidden me. Father, we pray as we come to your word this evening that you will pour out your spirit. Bless us, anoint us, and fill us, Lord, with your Spirit, that we may understand these verses this evening. Our heart's desire, Lord, each and every day of our lives is to know Jesus, to know Him and to know Him better, to fellowship with Him, to grow in wisdom and knowledge of Him, but to communicate with him through his word, through your word. And I pray, Father, that that understanding will come through tonight, encouraging us to love him all the more and to thank you, Lord, for sending your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We ask, Father, for your blessing tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. We ended last week's study on a a very somber note, disconnected, as it were, to the song of deliverance the Lord commanded to be sung at the fall of Babylon, which we saw, of course, in the last part of chapter 48. But there was this general pronouncement to the effect that there is no peace, there is no shalom, no salvation for the wicked. There is no peace, no salvation for the wicked. Isaiah 48 verse 22, that's where we ended last time. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. When you stop and think about that for for just a moment, and you realize that as believers in Jesus Christ, as those who have been blessed by by His mercy and grace, those who have been changed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His marvelous light, that no matter what kind of uh, problems or trials or troubles we may face in this world and in this life, we have a peace that passes all understanding because of Jesus Christ. And we will know peace because we know the Prince of Peace. But the Lord is saying there is no peace whatsoever. And there will be no peace eternally for those who remain Wicked. And the wicked here is not just speaking of the Babylonians or the enemies of God's people, but even those of Israel who have completely rejected their God. We're reminded by the world in which we live that it seeks out peace. But not as the Lord gives peace. But according to its own terms. According to its own conditions. That is how the world seeks peace. And so what you have going on today. Is you have modern Israel today. 
desiring peace with its neighbors at the expense of its own land, making concessions, more concessions than most of the people really want to make to an enemy that doesn't really honor any agreements whatsoever. But they're seeking peace. They're desiring peace. And one day they'll desire peace and will even follow one who we will eventually know as the Antichrist because he offers peace. The land, by the way, belongs to the Lord. And they want to give it away. Islam exacting its own type of peace with a sword. That's how they work peace, with a sword. And most of the rest of the secular ungodly world wanting to find peace does so by its own efforts and of course without God's help. How can you have peace without the one who gives true peace, true wholeness, true understanding. And so we find in this new section of Isaiah's prophecy, which extends from chapter 49 through chapter 57, we find here the servant Messiah fulfilling his ministry of restoring his people Israel to the land just before the millennium will begin. What is significant about chapter 49 is that it first deals with the issue of Israel's rejection of their Messiah and subsequently his taking salvation to the Gentiles, which we will see more fully in in all of chapter 49 and chapter 50. But here in verse 1, the servant Messiah addresses the nations that did not know Israel's God. Much like we saw back in Isaiah 45, verse 22, when God says to the nations, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. In one sense, He says, Look to me. Here in verse 1, He says, Listen to me. Look to me. Listen to me. I think if we are honest about our relationship to God and to Jesus Christ, that this is what we were told to do in coming to know who He is, in coming to know Christ as our Savior. We had to look to Him. We had to seek Him out, behold Him. And then in looking for Him, we had to listen to Him. And so He says to the Gentile nations, Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples, from afar. You see, the coastlands here are the distant and remote lands of the Gentiles. And they are all called to listen to God, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. Their Creator, the One who made them. Being far off as they were, only God's servant could bring them near. As the Apostle Paul told the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 12 and 13 when he said to them that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off as you see have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It is through this servant, Messiah, that men and women are brought near to God. It is through what He's done. And this is why He came to this earth. And it was equally important that the Gentile world hear of Christ's calling and and, and commissioning by the Lord. It was equally important for the world to know what Jesus Christ did. We will see that throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, all of the types of sacrifice, all of the things that we see from beginning to end point to Jesus Christ. And of course we know that He came to His own people first. 
John 1.11 says, He came unto His own, but His own received Him not. But nonetheless, He wasn't just called to His people. And this calling and this commissioning by the Lord took place in the time before He was even born, physically. For we know that the Scriptures teach us that Jesus, the Son of God, is also the eternal Son. So He wasn't created. He has always been with the Father. But when He was sent to this earth and took upon Himself flesh, this calling was before He was even placed, of course, in the womb. And it's important for us to understand this. For this is how God works and has worked... Many times, Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This is the prophet Jeremiah being spoken to by God. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. God tells Jeremiah, I knew you before you were born. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul speaks of his particular calling when he says, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and and called me through His grace. And he goes on, but there again he says, when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb. Jesus actually was, was called even before He was in Mary's womb. For we see in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, familiar verse when Christmas time comes around and we read it and hear it. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting, called even before Mary was born. But then we find there in our text, there in verse 1, at the end of verse 1 of Isaiah 49, verse 1, For the matrix of my mother he has made mention of my name. And the reason I'm bringing all of this up is because all of these references are pointing to Jesus Christ. Pointing to Jesus the Messiah. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. This this portion of the passage was fulfilled in Luke chapter 1 verse 31. It was fulfilled there where the name of Jesus was declared before the conception in Mary's womb. In Luke one thirty one, it says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb. This is the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Yeshua, shall call his name Jesus. And it's interesting that even Joseph, who was to be married to, uh, to Mary, received a visitation from an angel. After she had already uh, been visited by the Holy Spirit. For we know that he was betrothed to Mary. It was discovered that she was with child of the Holy Spirit. But of course everybody thought it was somebody else. Joseph, being the man that he was, began to ponder things in his heart and his mind. Matthew 1 verse 20 says, But while he thought about these things, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So years before Jesus is born in this earth or on this earth, The prophecies had gone forth that he would be born as he was, that he would be born and given the name of Jesus, which means that God saves, and in particular that he would save his people from their sins. And after his calling is described for us here in verse 1 of Isaiah 49, 
The servant Messiah now turns to his being equipped for his calling, speaks of his purpose, and, and certainly if Jesus has a purpose, we ought to know about that purpose and the equipping for that purpose. In verse 2 it says, And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver he has hidden me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. When we read the of the picture of Jesus in the book of Revelation, when he comes to this earth a second time, which he has yet to do, but he's coming soon. We're told in that description that he comes with a sword proceeding from his mouth, a sharp sword. The Word of God. The shadow of his hand, he's hidden me. There's some obscurity being mentioned here. And yet he's been made as a polished shaft, a shaft in a quiver like a bow, or I should say a, a, an arrow in the quiver of, of an archer. Something that is ready for its, for its due time. In his quiver, he's hidden me. Again, the aspect of obscurity. We think of this issue of, of that sharp sword and his mouth. It was said of Jesus in the Gospel of John, John chapter 7, verse 46. No man ever spoke like this man. That was said of Jesus. No man ever spoke like this man. Why do you think that is? Well, primarily because he did not speak according to what the religious leaders of the past had said and taught. And those who had been listening to Jesus began to realize this, this isn't like all the leaders that we've heard before. It isn't like the rabbis that we have now. Nobody speaks like this man. Because he spoke with an authority. He spoke with power. Because of who he was. Because of what his calling was. Because of what his commissioning was. Jesus spoke with authority. Five times in Matthew chapter 5. Five times in Matthew 5, Jesus used the expression, You have heard that it was said. But five times Jesus also said, But I say to you. You have heard that it was said this, But I say to you. You have heard in the past what they have been teaching you, But I say to you. That's authority. That's authority over and above what was being taught. To the Jewish people at that time. And the last of those five statements. And the combination of statements. Is in verses 43 and 44. Of Matthew chapter 5. And this is just one example of five. But Jesus said. You have heard that it was said. You shall love your neighbor. And hate your enemy. You shall love your, your neighbor. Which was scriptural. And, you, and hate your enemy. You've heard it said that, that way. People have taught you that. But I say to you, you see now the authority that is to come from Jesus? This is what you were taught. I'm going to tell you what's true. I'm going to tell you what's right. And Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. And persecute you. Listen Christians. Are we doing that ourselves today? That is God's word to the church. As much as it was God's word. To the Jewish people. At the time of Jesus. Who had been mistaught and misled. Into believing that they could love their neighbor. But hate their, their enemy. And of course the question would come up. Who was their neighbor? came down to this at one point. Their neighbors, the Samaritans were their neighbors. Were they willing to live as God taught them to live amongst the people they despised? 
Jesus said, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Notice verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. If you are truly sons of God, then you will reflect His light. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Will you be my light? Jesus taught the truths of God that pierced the people's heart like a sword cutting deep. As described in Hebrews chapter 4 verses 12 and 13 where it says, For the word of God is living and powerful. And sharper than any two-edged sword. You know, we could spend a whole night on that first phrase of chapter, of chapter 4, verse 12 of Hebrews. The Word of God is living. It is alive. Have you found in, in your days and, and weeks and months and years of being a Christian... But the more you read God's Word, the more alive it is. The more contemporary that it is for right now, for the days in which we live. How relevant it is to the days and times in which we live. Is it not that? Is it not alive? You know, we oftentimes hear in our major... uh, confrontations in our own country politically, you know, about the Constitution, you know. They want to say that the Constitution is a living document. Well, it may be to a certain extent, but it is not a document like the Word of God is. That is a living document. That is a document that continues to speak because it's God speaking to us and it's God's Word speaking to us. It's God's heart speaking to us and God is alive. I don't care what all these atheists say. And we see it on a daily basis. We hear it on a daily basis. We experience it on a daily basis. God never changes. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. He loves us so much that He gives us everything we need for life and godliness. We stumble, He picks us up. We exalt ourselves, He humbles us. He lovingly humbles us. And when we finally realize what He's doing, we humble ourselves and He exalts us. Is this not God alive in our, li- in our lives? Is this not Christ living in us? Christ, the hope of glory, the Bible says. The hope of glory. Living and powerful is the Word of God. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We can't fool God. We can fool people. We can get real pious on the outside. But God knows what's in here. He knows what's right here. And so, He's the discerner. And the Word is... You ever thought about doing something you know you ought not to do and somehow the Bible flips open right where you need to read and it says, you know, here's my warning to you because I know what you're thinking. That's God speaking. There is no creature hidden in His sight, it says, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Jesus teaches the truths of God to us and it pierces, the, it pierces our hearts. And it pierces people's hearts like a sword cutting deep. And getting back to the last phrase of verse 2 of our text. In, verse 40, uh, in chapter 49, verse 2. It prophetically declares that the Messiah is a carefully made and polished arrow. Ready to be used at the right time in the service of the Lord. The reference to being hidden in God's quiver more than likely refers, as I said before, to His obscurity. And we have to understand His obscurity. You see, He wasn't born into this world with pomp and circumstance and fanfare. 
He was not born in the greatest of hospitals, in the, in the, you know, with, with all the, uh, the attention given to, to royalty. He came to this earth lowly, born to simple parents, born and placed in a manger, a feeding trough of animals. He was born into this world simply and quietly until his ministry was to begin. That was the obscurity. He began his earthly ministry at the age of 30. It ended sometime in his 33rd year. About three and a half years is recorded for us of his earthly ministry. But before that, obscurity. So the scripture is, is detailing for us the life of Messiah coming to this earth. In verse 3 of our text it says, And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Interesting. He's called Israel. See, right away people will say, No, no, he's, not. he's talking to Jesus in the first two verses, and then he's talking to Israel in the second two verses. No, wait, listen, watch. He said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. It it is clear from the context of the chapter that this particular portion is still speaking of Messiah, even though he is called Israel. Now some have come to the conclusion that this passage is speaking of Israel and not Jesus. But just looking ahead to verse 5, we see that this servant is to draw the nation of Israel back to God. Notice in verse 5, And now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. So in context, it's really still speaking of Jesus. So why is he called Israel? Well, first of all, let's consider some reasons why we can trust that this is still speaking of Messiah. First of all, because the Messiah comes from Israel and is a representative of the nation. By the way, he's the best representative the nation's ever had. Because he's perfect, he's sinless, can't have a better representation than that. Secondly, because the Messiah fulfills the name of Israel. And as we said before, Israel means governed by God. Who has better showed the life of one governed by God than the Son who is obedient to the Father to come to this earth and to do everything that the Father has asked Him to do? (laughs) And another reason can be found in the prophecy of Hosea and its fulfillment in the Gospel of Matthew. First of all, look at Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. There it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now that is obviously speaking of Israel when they were freed from their bondage in Egypt and we could just leave it at that except for this passage in Matthew. Matthew chapter 2 verses 13 through 15. And let's see what it says. It says, Now when they had departed, speaking of uh, Joseph and Mary and, and all, it says, When they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, speaking about Hosea, saying, Out of Egypt... I called my son. Is this not just going along with what we learned at the very beginning of our study of the book of Isaiah? That we will oftentimes see what? Near fulfillments and far fulfillments. The near fulfillment, of course, was already, actually had, done, had been done before, right? It had been done in the time of, of the Exodus. That they were called out. So in some sense they were looking back at Israel being called out of Egypt. But it was really pointing forward to what? To Jesus being called out of Egypt. It's talking about Jesus. 
What Matthew is telling us is that Hosea was also speaking of Jesus who embodies all that the nation of Israel was called to be. And therefore, one who is truly worthy of the name. God's perfect servant, governed by God and displaying His splendor. Because notice that it talks about being glorious in the eyes of the Lord. It talks about glory, doesn't it? Go back to verse 3. Look at what it says. And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Verse 5, if you look at the end, For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord. This is Jesus speaking. If this is consistent, it is Messiah that is speaking of that glory. So he is the only one who is truly worthy of that name, Israel, in this sense. He is God's perfect servant, governed by God, displaying his splendor. And doesn't Jesus display the splendor of his Father gloriously? (laughs) Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, makes that very clear to us. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. And notice verse 3, who being the brightness of His glory, the brightness of the glory of God, the brightness of the glory of God the Father, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, the exact copy of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Who else could display such splendor of the Father but the Son Himself, who could be alone, perfectly, the representation of what Israel was supposed to be. Jesus was. Now let's look, let's look closely at verse 4 again. Let's go to verse 4. It says, then, then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. Now you might wonder what that is saying. Is that Jesus saying that? Well, let me first say that we are not wrong when we tend to focus on the deity of Jesus. We are not wrong when we tend to focus on the deity of Jesus, being that this is a primary and significant point of biblical doctrine, that Jesus is indeed God. So we're not wrong when we tend to focus on the deity of Christ. But we do have to remember that Jesus was also human. Jesus came and took upon Himself flesh. And since we can easily forget that Jesus hungered and He thirsted, Jesus grew tired and He felt pain, and if you take a moment to consider who and what the Lord had to work with on this earth, you could certainly believe that one of His greatest temptations was facing discouragement due to the reaction and rejection of the people. Ever thought about who He had to work with? He had to work with the disciples. I know later on he would call them apostles, apostles, but most of the time they were just disciples, if you think in terms of grades. That's who he had to work with, disciples. They tried hard, and eventually they become apostles, but they were disciples. That's who he had to work with. By the way, he still, work, he still works with us, doesn't he? Sometimes we're pretty good at being disciples. That could surely discourage anyone. <laughs> they not being so much interested in a relationship with God. And I'm not talking about the disciples right now. I'm talking about just the people that he came among. Because they were not so much interested in a relationship with God than they were with seeing miracles and being fed. And, you know, having all the blessings of what Jesus was doing while he was here on this earth. We can praise the Lord that even though Jesus ministered in difficult and discouraging circumstances, that He never gave in to discouragement. Aren't you thankful for that? I tell you what, we ought to shout for joy. The very fact that Jesus Christ never gave in to discouragement, and He doesn't give in to discouragement today, He doesn't have to, because He's glorified. 
He's at the right hand of the throne of God, His Father. But when He was here, He didn't give in to discouragement. And He always put His trust in the Lord. He always put His trust in His Father. I would almost have to believe that that was done so that we might learn from that. Put our trust in the Lord and not in men. Put our trust in the Lord and not in self. Put our trust in the Lord, not in our own way of thinking. Do you remember when Jesus took His disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane? Before He went to the cross? Before He was taken and beaten and suffered? He was suffering in the Garden. He said to them in, in Matthew twenty six thirty eight. He said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. So Peter, James, and John. He went a little farther, fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What a wonderful connection to this thought that we see in verse 4 of our text. Where he said, I have labored in vain. Spend my strength for nothing and in vain. You, yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. You see, it ends with that thought, yet surely my just reward is with the Lord. My work with my God. And it brings us back to that understanding that Jesus committed it all to the Father. He committed everything to the Father, never focusing on the outward circumstances. He desired to do the Father's will and gave the rest into the Father's hands. He desired to do the Father's will and He did that night, didn't He? He did the Father's will. When they came for Him, He went. Like a sheep led to the slaughter. But He knew that. He came prepared. He was a prepared arrow. Polished arrow. In the quiver of his father. In verses 5 through 7, it tells us, And now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. And to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel. And He has chosen you. The Messiah came not only for the Jews, you see, but also for the Gentiles. But as we have oftentimes read and seen clearly in Scripture, the Lord couldn't minister to the Gentiles until He first ministered to His chosen people. In Matthew chapter 10, as a matter of fact, when He begins to send out His disciples, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, these twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That is, that is not Him saying, Don't ever go to them. He says, Don't go to them now. Don't go there now. Right now, you go to the lost sheep of Israel. You go first to them. What did, we just, what did we read earlier in John 1.11? He came unto His own first, and His own received Him not. But first He came to them. And so this is, this is the pattern. John chapter 4, verse 22. Speaking to the woman at the well, He says, You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews first to the Jews through the Jews, the Savior came. Salvation is of the Jews. But then Paul, the Apostle, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, clarifies all of this for us when he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, 
For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek or the Gentile. For the Jew first. He came to his own first. He came among them first. He came as a Jew. The best Jew ever was. Never sinned. Kept the law perfectly. The only one who ever did. Because he was not only one who followed the law, he was there when the law was given. He was before the law. He was Jesus. The Bible itself is a Jewish book. The first believers and the missionaries, uh, the first ones were Jews. The Gentiles would have never heard of the gospel. The Gentiles would have never heard the gospel had it not been to them, been brought to them by the Jews. What was the great commission to them? Actually, what was the what was the command to them in Acts chapter one verse eight, beginning with Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, which were the outer, you know Samaria were the the mixed people, but then unto the uttermost parts. Of the world. Well, who lived in the uttermost parts? All the Gentiles. But before all that would happen, Jesus' mission would be clearly defined beyond his calling to the Jews. His mission would be clearly defined beyond his calling to the Jews. Look at verse 6. Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation. I want you to notice that. If you can't underline that in your Bibles. That it says that you should be my salvation. Not only take my salvation to the Gentiles, but that you shall be my salvation to the ends of the earth. He is salvation. Jesus in His name says He is salvation. But God says, who else could this be if it isn't Jesus Christ? I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation. It is of utmost importance to know that Messiah has a mission to the Gentiles, not simply to bring salvation to them, but to be salvation to the ends of the earth. Israel had been given light. Yes, it had been given light. I want to read from uh, uh, Isaiah 9 verse 2 later. But light had come to Israel. Light had been prophesied to Israel. Light had been given to Israel. As a matter of fact, you could go all the way back to a time when light was given to Israel. When they were in Egypt. When the plagues were beginning to affect the Egyptians because of, their, because of Pharaoh's hardness of heart. And eventually, complete darkness came out upon all of Israel. But in Goshen, where the Jews were, there was light. What light was that if it wasn't the light of the glory of Christ? And you could certainly go beyond, you know, before that and, and, and beyond that. Light was given to them when they were wandering through the wilderness. What kind of light was it? A pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Who was that if it wasn't God and Christ? The glory of the Father. Israel had been given light, but they needed restoration. The Gentiles needed both light and salvation, they needed everything. Isaiah 42, verse 6, we've studied it before. God says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. God, guiding His own Son, the Messiah. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Christ is the light. The Messiah is the light. Isaiah 60, verse 3. The Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Luke chapter 2, verses 29 through 32. Lord, and by the way, this is that, that, that great prayer of Simeon. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, 
which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. Notice, not just the Jews, but of all peoples. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. What does he say in his great prayer, anointed by the Holy Spirit? That Jesus Christ came, because he's holding the child, by the way. He's holding the child. And he, he says, I have seen. Thank you for letting me see salvation. The salvation of all peoples. Both Gentile and Israel. In Acts chapter 13, verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. There Paul, quoting from the text tonight, Quoting from Isaiah 49. And then lastly in Acts chapter 26 before Festus, Paul in verse 23 says, is speaking of what Paul is doing there before him, he says that the Christ would suffer that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. How often we find light and salvation. Light and salvation. Well, who is that if it isn't Jesus Christ? It is also significant that Messiah was despised and rejected by both Jews and Gentiles. As verse 7 of our text implies, look at verse 7, it says, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, and then notice, to Him whom man despises. He's speaking to Him whom man despises. Who is that? That's Messiah. That's Jesus. To Him whom man despises. Who's man? That's all of man. That's all of mankind. That's a very general statement here. But then notice in the next phrase it says, To him whom the nation abhors. What nation? Israel. Mankind in Israel. Jew and Gentile. To him whom man despises. To him whom the nation abhors. To the servant of rulers. The servant of all. In the sense that he is over and above all. It says, kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and He has chosen you. Jesus, the chosen Messiah. The Lord is speaking to the Messiah, revealing that He will be the one despised and abhorred by mankind in general and by, the, by Israel specifically. And confirmed later, by the way. Confirmed later in chapter 53. In verse 3. Most of us are familiar with this passage. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, we, the Jews, we, Israel, hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Mankind in general, Israel in, in particular. Despised, rejected, abhorred. And yet one day in the end, the Messiah will not be despised or abhorred, but will receive the worship and honor that He deserves, because He is indeed the Chosen One. In His first coming, Jesus was rejected by His own people. I read that earlier. John 1, verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. But at His second coming, all both Jew and Gentile, all will bow before Him. Each and every person will bow before Jesus Christ. Paul tells it this way in Philippians 2, verses 9-11. through 11. He says, Therefore God has also highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue... Every tongue, Jew and Gentile, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is what we have been seeing all throughout these first seven verses of Isaiah 49. How wonderfully powerful this passage is for us to, to just anchor ourselves in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Prophesied thousand years before, 800 years before, 700 years before, 500 years before. All the prophecies following all the way up to the almost 400 years before His coming, pointing to Jesus Christ as Messiah, 
this one of the most powerful of the passages. We have been looking at the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. And I find that to be quite significant for us tonight. Because you see, this evening the world outside these walls is celebrating darkness. About the only way we can put it. It's Halloween. I think it's nutty. I don't know about you, I just think it's a nutty time. That's an exaltation of darkness, an exaltation of evil, an exaltation of wickedness. That's got to be fun. And fun at all. Here tonight, we have come to honor and to praise the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. That was the light that shone bright the night that Jesus came into this world as a child, as a babe, wrapped in swaddling cloths. I know this sounds like Christmas. Well, I'm ready for it. I'm ready for it. I think we should have Christmas 365 days out of the year. And Easter at the same time too. We should just celebrate them all the time. Because we're celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ, the burial of Jesus Christ, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And everything in between. His life, His love, His grace, His mercy. The Word became flesh. John chapter 1 verse 14. I close with this. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Just think of glory as just being the brightness of God. We beheld His glory and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. Who is described in the first seven verses of Isaiah 49? I hope and pray that it is unmistakably seen as Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our God, our light, our glory, our King, our salvation, our everything. And let's love Him because He is. So we pray.